Hey, well, I don't know about you, but I think about uh, the idea oftentimes of almost these reference points of our lives, right? I, uh, in like 2009, 10, uh, I got like my first like iPhone, iPod touch thing and started like taking pictures and started loading it into this program that just is, keeps all my pictures in order and just dumb pictures, but it just becomes this kind of like journal of time for me. And in certain times, certain years kind of become these like points of reference. Like in 2010, uh, I, I met my wife and well, she's my girlfriend and I, I started like referencing everything from this year, 2010, that, that a lot of change happened for me. I remember being a, a kid going swimming on, I don't know, some retreat thing out in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, in some reservoir, and I was swimming across this lake, and I almost drowned, but that's beside the point. But I remember swimming, doing this backstroke thing, swimming across this lake, and I kept looking at this giant dam as like a point of reference, and I kept swimming, and after like 30 minutes, I'm like, that thing has not moved, or I have not moved. Like, at my point of reference, was helping me anchor where I was at and what my problem was. Was that I was in the middle of the lake and I hadn't moved anywhere because the current was going this way and I was not moving. But these different points of references, whether it's the dam in the lake or, or pictures growing up or maybe it's uh, an experience that you had, a relationship that started, maybe something hard you walked through, what a good, bad, indifferent. Sometimes we have these points of reference you know, that kind of give us perspective on things. Sometimes when we don't have a point of reference, we don't know uh, when to end something or when to start something new because we haven't done it before. We have no point of reference for what it's, how we, how we process through this. If you open your Bibles, we'll be in the, in, in, we've been in 1 Corinthians all summer, but we'll be in chapter 15. In chapter 15, what Paul talks about here is a point of reference that is so important for all the early churches that he's writing to, specifically for the church in Corinth that he's been writing to. He's spent uh, the last 14 chapters kind of informing, correcting, clarifying uh, things to a church that was a mess. We talked about that, right? Like we've been talking about their misunderstandings and their relationships and, and their selfishness and all these different things that he came in was trying to help them with and correct. And the, the whole book kind of leads us up to this chapter. 15 is this, this big chapter, then he kind of ends in chapter 16 with kind of a final uh, goodbye. But in chapter 15, Paul gives an explicit picture of the story, the message, and the meaning of the gospel of Jesus. And the reason that he gives us, the reason that he gets to this section and he wants to deeply communicate uh, the gospel is because the church he's writing to, the church in Corinth, they were very much kind of a secular culture. We've talked about this, right? God saw, or temples to all kinds of different gods of sex and of wealth and of the weather and all these different kinds of things. They were a trade route. So lots of different thoughts and opinions and worldviews all coming through, right? They were interested in all these different kinds of things. The reason that Paul writes to them, chapter 15, is that these people, the church in Corinth, they struggled to believe in the resurrection. They struggled to believe and comprehend and understand and apply the resurrection. Both the resurrection of Jesus, like think about these gospel accounts of Jesus were starting to circulate. These letters that Paul was starting to write to the church were starting to circulate. And the, the message that we see today is the main message of what he wanted them to grab onto. And it was the resurrection of Jesus. And then what Paul's going to look at, what we're going to look at next week is, is our future resurrection. These two weeks are almost like, it's like when you're watching like a sitcom and there's a part one, part two. Now, like all Netflix stuff is just like part 12 of the same thing. But back in the day, sitcoms, you had part one, part two, dramatic episodes, right? And this week is part one of these two because the church struggled to believe in the resurrection. We're going to jump into that. But today we want to pick up in 
chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. I'm going to do my best to go with this clicker. Sometimes I forget to click it. So if that happens, just, just forgive me. But chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Paul has been walking through marriage and sexual relations and conflict in the church and communion and head coverings and love and tongues and all this stuff. And he gets to chapter 15. He says, now, now, brothers and sisters, now, all y'all, listen, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. We see in Acts that Paul first comes, plants this church, and he comes with this message of the gospel. He's like, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. The gospel, first and foremost, First and foremost is good news. If you've been in church for a long time, if you've been here for a long time, you're like, I know, Aiden. It's a message of good news, not advice, not knowledge, not information, not just a rule to follow, not a genre of music, but it is news. And whether the news is good, bad, or something that's indifferent to you completely is dependent upon the one hearing the news. Uh, we just had a Rogue's Hollow Fest in Doylestown. If you're from Doylestown, Ohio, you know Rogue's Hollow Fest. It is it's just a little little fest with slushies and a car show downtown Doylestown. And when I was growing up in Doylestown, I, I, I went to school in, in fifth grade. Fifth grade, I went to public school. I also went to public school in second grade, randomly. You know, kind of back and forth, just in and out, you know. But fifth grade. I was going to public school, and what I told my mother was, Mom, I want to go to public school because I want to find a girlfriend. I want to find a girlfriend, all right? It's not a lot of girlfriends when you're homeschooled. I didn't have, like, sisters with cute friends. I just had a bunch of brothers. No, no girlfriends in homeschool. So I wanted to go to public school, find myself a girlfriend. And at Rogue's Hollow Festival, what they'd do every year, because it was beginning of August, school was going to start in a few weeks, is they would post the class rosters up on the windows of the middle school. So I could go up to the middle school and I could see what girls are going to be in my class. Were there any cute girls in my class? Were there any potential girlfriends, maybe potential wives going to be in this class? Now for the teacher putting out this thing and just sticking it to the window, it was just information. It was just kind of some information about what this year is going to look like. But to a young homeschooler who was looking for a wife, this was good news. This was a declaration of good news of what girls were going to be in my class. Talking about how the gospel is news and not just simply information, David Zolli is an author. He says, knowledge relates to and empowers the self, which helps us solve everyday problems and hurdles that we face. But when the problem is the self, help must come from the outside. The gospel, this message, this good news addresses our plight as a people who are broken, desperate, and in need. We're going to talk about this more in a moment. But look at what Paul says. He kind of he kind of walks through a couple things here. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. It was this this initial message that the church received from Paul, and on which you have taken your stand. It's kind of where they planted themselves. What he wanted them to plant themselves was in this message. You received it. You replanted it. And they said, if you hold firmly that the gospel is not just the message that you hear in Sunday school when you're a kid, you hear once in a while that gets you into the club and there's things to do. The gospel is not just the ABCs. One pastor says but is the A through Z of everything that we need for following Jesus. It's our point of reference for everything. It's our point of reference for relationships and for struggles that we have and loss that we walk through 
And the way in which we understand and relate to these existential questions of God and who are you and where are you, the point of reference for all these things is the gospel. Too often we hear the message, we grow up with it, we become numb to it, and then we move on to depths of theology and experience to try to make sense of the gospel. But the gospel is good news. It doesn't just inform us. It doesn't just start but it continues the good news. The gospel is good news for when you fail because it points us to the grace of a God who stepped into our story. That the gospel is good news for when you walk through loss, for when you walk through death and grief because it gives us a hope that is beyond this world. That the gospel is good news for when the cable news is bad news because we, we become aware that this world is not all that there is. That the good news of the gospel is good news for boring days because there's purpose within the mundane. It's not just how we get in, but it is what sustains us through all things when we hold to it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look what Paul goes on to say in verse 3. I love this. Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance importance. Now, guys, this is, if you're writing your Bibles, I would underline first importance. In college, I was a communication major. I'll tell you that story sometime. At least I thought I was. And I, uh, I, I had a, cla- a news writing class. And in this news writing class, it kind of taught, taught you news writing, right? And there was a term I learned, perhaps you've heard this term before, it's burying the lead. When you write a news article, like your, your people are skimming through this, it's supposed to be tight and clear, so the, the headline of the article is supposed to communicate the clearest thing, and then it unpacks a little bit and then gives follow-up details at the end. But the lead is the headline of the article. Sometimes you just read, you just read the headlines, which is kind of fine because that's the, that's the lead. That's what we're supposed to grab onto. That's the most important thing. Maybe you heard uh, a story recently of a new galaxy that the James Webb Telescope took a picture of, or a new star, I forget. But it was a star that the James Webb uh, Telescope took a picture of, and it was this big thing. And a scientist tweeted out a picture of this talking about the beauty of this picture that the telescope took. But then a couple days later, there was a headline all all through the news, and it said this, French scientist apologizes says space telescope image of distant star was actually just chorizo. And if you're not sure what chorizo is, it's, it's sausage. That is a picture of sausage that is not a star. But the lead, the lead, the headline of the article tells us everything that we need to know. Tells us everything that we need to know. Too often, whether it's, whether it's implicit or whether it's explicit, is that we, we, we bury the lead of the faith of Jesus. We bury the lead of what this whole Christianity thing is. And too often we think it's about morality, a particular American political agenda, a subculture, that it's about acting a certain way. It's about this kind of God-based self-help program. It's about simply being a good person. It's maybe for some of us, it's about comprehending theology. And if we get all the pieces, parts of theology, then everything will make sense. We can figure out and it becomes this science. For some of us, we bury the lead of the gospel because there's particular theological things that we think are the most important things in the world. Whatever that is, and that becomes the main point of theology is a very particular theological kind of rabbit trail. Not saying that they're not important things, but they're not the lead. And what Paul says here is that what he received, this this gospel message that was preached to him, that, that Jesus literally showed up in his life Literally, 
that he passed it on to the church in Corinth as first importance. He's reminding them of this message that was of first importance and the unwavering, most central, non-negotiable aspect of our faith, the lead of the story, so to say, is what Paul goes on to say next. He says this, he says, I, I received, I passed on to you his first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, in the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. That's important. Though some have fallen asleep. The lead, the thing that is most important, the headline of the article is that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, raised again, and that he appeared. And we see this, if you're like, how do we know if this is the most important message? If Jesus was crucified, if he died, he came back to life and he tells his disciples to go spread the gospel, go and make disciples of all nations. I think it's worth clicking and seeing what they're talking about. And if you just do a quick thumb through of the book of Acts where the church starts, you will see time and time again, Peter and the apostles completely coming back to this story. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 13, you see Peter saying, you guys killed the author of life. You crucified Jesus, but he did not stay dead. He rose again. And in most of these, Peter points us to our need for the repentance of sins and putting our faith in this story. It's the message of first importance. We get so distracted, so distracted by our issues and our theological rabbit trails, which are important, but the central, the central message of the gospel of which all these things flow from of which is the reference point for all of these other issues, all these other questions, all these other things that go on in our culture, is this story of Jesus, is this message. And that's what we want to look at for just the rest of today. The first aspect, the first piece that we see, this is simple today, my friends, but for some of us, we need reminded of this because we have gone on to find other headlines for our lives, other headlines for our articles, other headlines for our faith, and we need to be reminded of the central message that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins is the first thing Paul says, that Jesus did not come to be a moral teacher. He wasn't just a good example. He wasn't a nice person who showed us a nice way to live. He didn't come just that Jesus was a rebel, came to shake up the religious establishment. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Paul's writing this to his intern, Timothy, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. That's what Paul says. The guy who's writing to the Corinthians, the guy who's writing to the Corinthians, correcting them on all these things, reminding them, rebuking them, teaching them, he says to his intern, the most important thing, the trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. Really, Paul, you're the worst? Like all these Corinthians you're writing to that are kind of stepping over top of each other, disregarding one another, disregarding, like you're, you're the worst? It's an interesting kind of attitude and perspective Paul has of himself and of sin. I think there's a few ways that we view the idea of sin. I think one way some of us can view sin is that sin or sinners are out there. Like they're out there somewhere. You know, there's those people in the other party. It's those other people. It's the... It's this other, the other side of the political spectrum. It's the rich or it's the burnouts or it's the lazy or it's that generation or it's those people. Like it's always easy to think of 
groups that we know of sins out there. Like if you ask the question, like who are sinners? Like who would your mind go to, right? I think of sometimes these these different like TV show people like I ten years ago there was like the Duggars like this hyper uh, kind of conservative family that the world was so like evil out there and and they kind of isolated themselves within and then what, time after time you find out all this this just egregious sin that came out of this family and the air that we believe is that if we could protect ourselves the sin is out there somewhere and we have to protect ourselves from it. What we can miss sometimes is that we, we don't deal with the sin that is inside of us. We tend to minimize our own sin and emphasize other people's sin. This is what the Pharisees, the kind of religious conservatives of Jesus' day, they believed in sin, but they believed that it was others who had the problem. They didn't first and foremost see that they were the sinners. That sin was always something that was out there, but not in here. We've said this before. I love this quote. Someone writes into a an old theologian named G.K. Chesterton. And they wrote in asking, what is wrong with the world today? And I think that's a question that's on all our minds. What is wrong with the world today? And he simply wrote back to this person. He says, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That he acknowledged his, his sin, his role in the evil and the problems of the world. Jonathan Edwards, an old preacher, said the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. It's so easy for us to think that sin is out there and not in here. I think one attitude, second attitude that sometimes we think is we acknowledge that. We're like, yeah, 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 we got sin, yeah. And so we can have almost this defeatist or kind of reductionist uh, attitude towards sin that doesn't really care. And so we'll use the theological concept of sin to ignore any of our own responsibility about how my sin impacts people in my life, how sin impacts me. How my sin contributes. We're, we're aware that there's this idea of sin. Yeah, we're sinners. We're sinners. No one's perfect. We're all just sinners. And we kind of use it as this. So that's fine. And we use it as an excuse sometimes. Well, God's going to forgive us because we're all just sinners. You know, life, death, and sin. And taxes, right? Like that's like all, all we think about. We can just kind of throw it in this bucket and disregard it. And not feel the weight of it. We just reduce it to this theological concept. Yeah, I'm a sinner. We don't feel the weight of our sin. I think one of the most prominent ways in our culture that, that sin kind of shows up and plays out is almost this like, whoa, don't tell me I'm a sinner. Don't tell me what to do. The, the book of Judges tells us that the days will come when and we see this in the Old Testament. We see this now. We see this throughout most generations that we all do what's right in our own eyes. And there's almost this aversion to like, whoa, don't tell me what sin is. And this is the most prevailing in our world today. And, and Paul talks about this for, for, for those that aren't followers of Jesus. I mean, it's, it's part of the good news of the gospel. But I think about that, those for us inside the church. That we want Jesus. We want to, we want, Jesus is a, a friend of ours and he's with us in struggles and he's with us in our loss and he's always there. We can pray to him when we're having a hard day. But when he confronts me, about my sin, about my selfishness, about the ways of my life that did not line up with his. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. That's toxic, right? We have a hard time dealing with that. But if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is a friend, full of grace, full of love. He kneels down with the woman at the well. He heals those that are broken. He eats with broken sinners and tax collectors. All Yes, yes, yes. 
But Jesus is also Lord if you're a follower of Jesus. He is Lord. What, what he says goes. That your money is his, your sexuality is his, your time is his, your relationships are his, your life is his. Your life is hidden in Christ if you're a follower of Jesus. Like, I want to gently, gently but clearly remind you today, like, you are a sinner. And you aren't, you aren't a sinner because, because you sin a little bit. The reason that we sin is because we are sinners. Romans 5 talks about this, right? Like, sometimes we have this mentality like, well, I'm only a sinner if I take a cookie from the cookie jar. And we all kind of rate what, what's the worst cookie jars that we've either reached into or not reached into. But the scriptures show us you aren't a sinner once you take that cookie from the cookie jar. That sin is in your heart because you desire that cookie for yourself. You want to take that cookie from that other person that's got that cookie and your whole being wants that cookie for yourself because sin is inside of us. So we don't need a spiritual experience, a feeling. We don't need to just buckle down. We don't need like mindfulness or some killer application to solve our deepest problems. What we need to do is die to ourselves, die to our sin and be recreated in Christ. This is a message of first importance that Paul gives to the church. But for some of us, I think the way that sin, the way our attitude is towards sin, kind of a heart towards sin, is you may be listening and you're like, I, I know I am. You don't think it's out there. You haven't disregarded it. You're not like, whoa, that's not me. But you're like, I, I know I am. And you can feel it. You carry the weight of your sin, of things that you've done, of decisions that you've made, of regrets, of mistakes, relationships. And you're like, listen here, preacher, I, I, I know. I'm reminded of this every day, and maybe there's someone that won't let you forget. And, and you feel like you, you can't even approach Jesus. Like, you, you feel like you've gone too far. You feel like all these messages and sin, and sure, the Corinthians had their problems, but I mean, not what I've done, not what I've ex- put people through. Perhaps if that is you and that's where I was sin, you may be the one who's most ready for the good news because this news is not information, but it's, it's, it's a message. It's news that is completely dependent on the hearer. And maybe you need reminded today that this news is good news for all of us. If we don't, if we don't, I know you're like, is there Aiden? Thanks for being an 1800 preacher today. But if we don't grasp our sin, we don't grasp Jesus. If we don't grasp the weight and the need of sin, then the cross feels like overkill. Like, oh, thanks Jesus. It feels like just like a, you know, little smack on the butt would a, you know, kind of point me in the right direction. You didn't have to die for me. I think the cross is overkill. Sometimes we'll think some of Jesus' teaching, they just sound too harsh. Like. You know, one of the hard things for us to wrestle with and grapple with and understand today is this whole concept of hell. It's hard. But we're like, oh, I love Jesus. Jesus was very nice and helpful. But I don't like hell very much. I hate to break it to you, but Jesus is the one who talks about it the most. And we're like, why did he talk about it so much? Because we're sinners. Because sin is not a joke. But because God takes sin so seriously that he would nail himself to a tree to deal with it. That we take the cross for granted and we don't acknowledge our sin. We don't acknowledge that Jesus 
died for our sins. Message of first importance, the hope of this all is that our sin is not something that we have to carry, that we have to deal with, that we have to figure out, that we have to hide, that we have to self-justify with. But the good news for us, wherever we're at, is that Christ died for your sins, that God laid down his life to deal with all the evil that you have brought into this existence. But it does not end there. Paul says the first importance that Christ died for our sins, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he was raised. If there was, if sin is this terminal illness of ours that separates us from God, if there is a terminal disease that we need to bring someone back from the dead, if someone we love dies of a disease, there's two things we must do. We must bring them back from the dead if we want them again. But we must also cure this disease lest they die of that same disease again. And Jesus cures the disease of sin when he dies for our sins. But he is raised again. And my friends, this is the central heart of everything we believe. Christianity, the faith that we have established was established and survived on a, not a message of good teaching or a nice way to live, but it was established and it has survived on the message that a man who claimed to be God raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. There's a pastor named Josh Porter. He says, to undo Christianity, all you have to do is leave Jesus in the grave, a pile of bones somewhere in Palestine. Think about when the angel appears to the women, he appeared, the angel appears to the women and said, he is not here. He has risen. You know, they didn't, the angel didn't say what Porter says is he is not here. He is everywhere because it's amorphous idea of resurrection happiness. But Jesus physically, literally, bodily raised from the dead. I want you to pause for a second. Some of you grew up in church a long time. Some of you are tuning on to this online because you don't want to come into the church for real. and You're kind of checking things out. Glad that you're here. I want you to ask yourself, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that a man named Jesus Christ lived 2,000 years ago, claimed to be God, lived his perfect life, was crucified? If this man named Jesus claimed to be God got nailed to a cross and they buried him and that was it, that's like inspirational. That's sad. That's like, I don't know, he taught some good things. Love you, Jesus. But if he rose from the dead, changes everything. That's why this whole, this whole church thing started. Think of Peter preaching in the book of Acts. He goes on and tells people Jesus died, but he rose again. This is the message that the church started with and was continued in. I want you just to pause, write it down. Write it down and ask yourself that question. Do I truly believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do I truly believe that? I remember talking to a, a, a guy a couple years, years ago, and I probably shared this before, but we were talking and, and he's, and he's a believer and and I think he was kind of figuring out as he said it, but he said, he said, you know, even if we found out that all this wasn't true, even if we found out that all this stuff about Christianity isn't true, it's still a good way to live. It's still a good way to live. Look what Paul says. Look what Paul says. He goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, he says, but if it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? Going to talk about that next week. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. He's like, we're just a bunch of liars about God because we have testified from God that he raised Christ from the dead. 
but he did not raise him. And if in fact the dead are not raised, verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, all that evil that you've done, all the sin that you brought into the world, we got to figure out some way to deal with this stuff. Because if Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If, see, I forgot to switch the thing. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope, then we are of all people most pitied. If it's only, for, if, if Jesus is just a good way to live, to teach us how to be nice and to teach us how to love one another. And then he died and somewhere in the Middle East is some old remains of a man who claimed to be God. Then this is all a joke, my friends. This, go do something else. Turn this off. Go, go be mindful. Go figure out something to do because this is not worth your time if Jesus did not raise from the dead if he's not alive. What difference does it make to us if Jesus raised or not? If the Pharisees were kind of the, the religious conservatives of the day who believed that it was other people's problem, that sin was out there somewhere, then the, the Sadducees were a different religious group. They were kind of the religious liberal party of the day and they did not believe in the resurrection. You'll find times in the scriptures and the gospels where they try to corner Jesus and try to catch him on if the resurrection happened or not. And he says, you're asking the wrong question because you don't believe in the resurrection. Both of these parties had problems with Jesus, by the way. Both the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not big fans of Jesus. But some of us are functional Sadducees where we don't believe in the resurrection. We don't truly believe in this concept. We think that Jesus was a good teacher, that he taught some good morality that has shaped our Western society. We have this vague concept of God, but we, we don't give him any real authority because he is in our hearts, even if we claim that he lives, he's dead in our hearts and he's a bag of bones somewhere in Palestine. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the grave? To first importance, Paul said, and the last thing he says is that he appeared. That Jesus appeared. That if the burial of Jesus confirmed that he was dead, that, they, that he died for our sins and was buried, tomb closed, the man is dead. They watched him die, stop breathing, and they laid him in the tomb. If that confirmed his burial, the appearance of Jesus confirmed that this was not just an emotional reaction by one or two or five people, but that the miracle had happened. I think it's interesting to look at who Jesus appeared to. I feel like Dan said this a couple, a couple months ago, but Jesus' whole ministry, he was opposed by these religious leaders of the Pharisees. He stood before people. He stood before Pilate and before Herod that laughed at him. He stood before all the people who crucified him, who called him names, who made fun. It's like, this guy can't even save himself. If I was Jesus, I'd, I'd come back to all those brothers and I'd be like, hello. And I would just, I don't know, turn him into a frog or something. Like, that's who I would appear to. But look at who Jesus appears to. And then he appeared to Peter, that's Cephas, Peter and the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most who were still living, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's his brother, and to all the apostles. Then Paul says, and last of all, he appeared to me, one abnormally born, 
Paul says doesn't even deserve to be called an apostle. I think it's interesting who Jesus, who Jesus shows up to. That this whole message happens and Jesus comes back and he appears first. He says he appeared to Peter. The one who said, Jesus, I am never going to leave you. I, I will never betray you. Jesus is like, you're going to leave me. Peter's like, no, I'm not, sir. I'll go wherever you go. He betrayed him. He ran, he hid, he denied that he even knew Jesus. And Jesus shows up to Peter. He shows up to, can you imagine being Peter and the last time you saw Jesus was you were walking away because you just denied him? You said you never would. You said you would never do it and you did. And the last time you saw Jesus was when your eyes met across that courtyard. And now Jesus is standing in front of you with holes in his hands and he stands in front of Peter and just as Peter denied Jesus three times, that Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Jesus, yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. That this appearance to Peter was a grace that changed Peter. And Peter went from being a little chicken who was all talk to the one who preached these sermons and began the building of the church, the rock who the church was built on. The grace and forgiveness of Jesus changed Peter when Jesus appeared. That Jesus appeared to the twelve, he appeared to those he loved, that he invested in, that he discipled, that he led. And I think about how one of the twelve was Thomas, who has a great name, Doubting Thomas. He was one of the twelve, who when they claimed that Jesus is alive, Thomas is like, I want to see some facts. I want to see him literally. And Jesus comes and appears to Thomas, and Thomas touches the holes in his hands. I think there's comfort in the fact that the story is included, that some of us have doubts, some of us have struggles. We're like, we want to see it. Show me the videotape, right? And there's a special grace that Jesus comes to us in that way, that Jesus appeared to the 500, to the masses. As it was written, it was almost this testimony. Paul, Paul was writing this letter to the church in Corinth at a time, not long after, not many years after Jesus had been raised. He's, he's saying the names, he's saying the people, he's like, you can go and ask them. Go and ask him. But the 500 shows us that Jesus didn't just stay with his group, didn't just show up to the couple select few, but he revealed himself to the world. And I imagine that in these 500 were women and children, rich, poor, insiders, outsiders, farmers, tax collectors, friends, some enemies, some who embraced him, some who were still skeptical. But he appeared to the 500. And last, Paul says, last and least is what Paul says, that he appeared to Paul. That Paul was humble, thought he was unworthy. He didn't count himself to be worthy of this interaction with Jesus because he himself persecuted the church. Can you find yourself in who Jesus came to, who Jesus appeared to? And I'm not saying I'm not saying Jesus is going to physically appear to you. If that happens, just email us Norton at graceohio.org. We would I would like to hear about it. <laughs> I'd like to hear about it. I'm not saying Jesus is going to physically appear to you. But I think there's weight to who he appeared to. That in your doubt, your betrayal, your distance, your sin, that Jesus makes a way to be present with us. He comes to us. That's what Christmas shows us. That's what the Gospels, the people that he interacted with, show us. Even after he was nailed to a tree, buried in the grave, rose again, he comes back to all these different people. 
And we're reminded that the Spirit of Jesus leads us and that the Holy Spirit is present with us, that He appeared, that He is not gone, He is not floating off somewhere, but Jesus is present with us. For some of us listening today, we're, we're very optimistic about, about life and the world and all these things. And, and sometimes, the, maybe for you, if you're an optimist, like the talk of sin and that there are sinners and that you're a sinner, unless that like, might make you a little uncomfortable, you're like, oh, I don't know, I tried to be my best. And sometimes you might plug your ears, cover your eyes to the reality of sin, the reality of death and pain. And, and somewhere in your heart, you have this optimistic mindset that if we just found the right leader, the right system, the right attitude, the right workout routine, the right diet plan or life coach, that we could all just be on the path to being our best selves. We just need some education and some good systems and some good people to, to solve the world's problems. And that Christianity, if it's anything, is a way of positivity and a way of being just a better you. And maybe this whole idea of the resurrection is a metaphor for spring and newness and ultimately we need to keep our chin up and keep going because Jesus was, that's what he would want us to do. And you're very optimistic and others of you, you would go through maybe the pain of life, you read the news and you're just a pessimist. You look at the brokenness of the world, you look at sin in your own life and your friend's life and your family and the world around you and you could be like, what is the point of all this? There is just so much that is wrong. And even when we try to do the right thing, it just ends up in failure because we're pessimistic. Like you believe in God, like sure, but there's no power. There's no miracle. There's no true hope for here and now. And you're like, Jesus is, is good for our hearts, but it has no bearing on the real problems of this world. We need real solutions, real systems. And we're, we're just pessimistic about, about how this all plays out. I think all of us in one way or another in different situations can gravitate towards that. God's going to show up. He's going to come through. He's going to be here. He's going to do everything and fix all the whole world real quick. Or we're like, it's just, I don't know. Just say your prayers and cross your fingers, I guess. There was a, a, a missionary to, to India back in, I think, like the 60s, 80s. His name was Leslie Nubigen. And he was he was near the end of his life and and he had written some different books kind of about culture at the time. And, and someone asked him this question. They asked him, are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist about the world, about how everything's playing out and about God's role in the world? And he said this, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That it's not untethered positivity it's not just being chipper. It's not just putting on a smile. But this message of first importance, this good news, it's hopefulness. It's a deep sense of true hope that Jesus is working regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the darkness, regardless of the pain, regardless of the loss, regardless of, of the uncertainty that there is not just a, <laughs> it's going to be good, positivity, I'm an optimist, but it's hopefulness. It's a deep sense of conviction that we believe these things to be true. It's not negativity. It's not, well, I'm just a realist and we're all just going to mess up. But it's humility and it's honesty, acknowledging that I'm part of the problem. It's not a cynicism that just sees the negative side of everything. But the resurrection points us that God is working in all things and he is not done. 
that the kingdom of Jesus is subversive and we don't always see how it's playing out, but we trust that this message of first importance is the reference point for everything. And that we aren't gonna be cynical because God is working, but it's not burying our heads. It's not just like optimistically being like, life's gonna be great if I ignore everything that's hard. It's not burying our heads because God has called us to be ambassadors of this good news, to be messengers of hope, to be ones that proclaim this message of importance, that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and appeared for our sin. Neither an optimist or a pessimist, but Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And so Jesus, I pray that this would not be a theological concept to us, but that this would be a reality in which our lives are built on. That Jesus, the resurrection, gives us hope for here and hope for now. That the fact that you died for our sin shows that we don't have to manage it, we don't have to figure out what to do for it, but we need to be honest and give it to you and die to ourselves. That Jesus, the resurrection, is our reference point for everything. And Jesus, forgive us for for, for making our, our, our point of reference the news or our politics or our emotions or our experience or our intellect. But Jesus, I pray that this message of first importance, that the headline of our faith would be our reference point, that this good news would meet us where we're at. Jesus, we're thankful that you died, that you're buried, and that you rose again. And we, as your church, as followers of Jesus, 2,000 years later, continue to proclaim this message. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.